You're listening to The West Wing Weekly. I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And I'm Joshua Molina. And today we've got a special episode. We're talking to executive producer and director of The West Wing, Alex Graves. We finally got him. It's taken us a while. We've been wanting to talk to him for a long time. But in some ways, this is the perfect setting. We're now deep into the show, and this is a bonus episode, so we can talk to him about everything. Instead of pegging it to just one episode, we're going to talk to him about everything we've seen so far and all the things that he's done over the years on The West Wing. That's right. It's entirely possible, Rishi, that we got played, that he was looking for a bonus episode, and so he'd (laughs) never commit to a specific West Wing episode. He knew our plans before we did. I think so. Well, it worked out for all of us. Happy news indeed. All right, let's get into it. Joining us now is director, writer, executive producer, Alex Graves. Hi, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Alex, I'm Josh Molina. I was on the show. Josh, it's great to meet you. I've heard great things, and I went back and looked you up, and I do remember you. Oh, good. (laughs) No, I actually had, I was a little bit involved in you getting on the show, but anyway. Oh, I definitely want to hear that then. Let's go back to the beginning of the story. Alex, where does the story begin for you? It begins with when I was doing my first episode of Alan McBeal, which was like my second or third job with a crew. Mike Listo was a producer on Alan McBeal. And my second day on the job, I had a production meeting about a dream sequence that needed to be kind of technically involved. And I came in, I was very prepared. And after this meeting, he called Tommy Schlami, and they were doing the first season of Sports Night. And he said, you should meet this kid because he sounds like what you've been needing on Sports Night because Sports Night was very hard to do. And of course, like to me, it was just like, oh my God, you know, it was the most exciting thing that could happen. So I said, can I go over and see how it's shot? And I went over and I watched Tommy filming and saw the cast. And, you know, I was so intimidated by the actors. I was like, oh, my God, I could never do this, but said yes anyway. So I went over to meet and to hang out on set to watch them shoot and meet Tommy Swami. And um, I'd never met anybody like Tommy. and, And I kind of fell in love with him in like five minutes, which I think is probably normal for him. Your first Jew? <laughs> yeah. Having grown up in the Midwest, he was my first Jew, and I was yeah, madly... I thought that's what you meant. From the top, thank you. And he said, you know, you need to meet Aaron. And I knew who Aaron was because of the American president. I was a huge... I was a real fan of Aaron's. So I went in to meet Aaron. I was very nervous. And Aaron and I started talking about old movies and hit it off just like a bomb. And Tommy interrupted the meeting, and he said, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but Aaron, guess what? We just found the Oval Office. And I'm sitting there and he's and Aaron's like, you're kidding. He's like, it's in a storage facility in Simi Valley. And it's the Oval Office from American president and we could use it. And I said, sorry, what are you doing with an Oval Office? Because I'm thinking sports night. And they said, oh, well, we just finally got greenlit to do the show we're doing about the White House and we're shooting the pilot next month. And um, I said, the White House. It's like, okay, that's doesn't sound like anything anybody's talking about. It was really interesting. And then um, Tommy called me about a month later, and I thought it was about sports night. And he said, well, we can talk about sports night later, but we directed this pilot called The West Wing, and I'd like to send it to you to see if you'd do it. And he, he had a messenger send a copy of the pilot on VHS to my house. And I remember watching it, and I had a feeling that I still hold on to that it was a little bit like how I felt when I first saw Game of Thrones, which was I couldn't, you watched it and you went, how are they going to do this every week? Because it was so ambitious just on so many levels. And I called Tommy and I said, how are you going to do this every week? Are you going to do this every week? And he said, that's the plan. <laughs> and I was like, well, count me in. And they hired me to direct what became In Excelsis Deo. And what was that like? What was your first day directing The West Wing like? Well, <laughs> what a first episode. That's a good question. So I went over to do In Excelsis Deo, and I encountered a kind of an emptiness uh, on the show because Aaron was having his first writer's block. Aaron was writing like a scene or two a day, and they would shoot a scene when it was written and then break. Anyway, so I called Arlington Cemetery and got like a whole lesson in how they bury veterans. And then I started shooting. So first day of filming on the show, I had an ensemble scene with everybody in the lobby. And it was Martin and a bunch of kids who were visiting the White House. And I had I had only bumped into Brad Whitford during prep. 
And he had locked eyes with me as we were, he was leaving stage and I was coming on stage and I was very nervous and intimidated. And Brad looked over at me and he said, Hey, are you the new director? And I said, yeah. And he said, great. You're going to be my bitch boy all week. (laughs) (laughs) Which for those of us, and I, I started laughing. I think I laughed off and on for a week, which was really my intro to Brad, who obviously became a really good friend of mine and, and is still probably the funniest person I've ever met. And, uh, had an absolute blast with him. But anyway, so first day of shooting was the scene in the lobby. We're shooting everybody. And I had to turn around and do an angle on Alice and Janney. And what I remember the most about the first day of filming on West Wing was uh, I rolled on Janney and the air went out of the room. And I'd never seen an actor like that with that kind of talent. I just never seen anything like her. Do you remember which scene it was that gave you that impression? Because, you know, that's not a big CJ episode. Well, that's a great point because she came in and she was telling him about, I think his name was Matthew Harrison, which is, it was based on a true story that had happened in the news the previous year about a young man who was homosexual, who was a high school student, who was tied and beaten to death by his fellow classmates for being gay. She comes in to tell the president that the young boys died in the hospital. And then watches and listens to the rest of the scene for like two minutes of screen time. Mm-hmm. And so as I was going on and on about how amazing she was, just think about she's not even talking. Right. I mean, she's just standing there acting and listening and doing what an actor's supposed to do. But it was just utterly hypnotic to watch her work. And that never changed. Anyway, so then I wrapped that day, that first day of shooting, doing a scene with uh, Tim Busfield and, and Janney. And then was driven to the airport, flew the red eye to D.C. and got up to shoot the Korean War Memorial sequences. Hmm. And I was driven to the Korean War Memorial on three hours sleep or whatever it was. And I was met by the producer there for the show, who's the local producer. They said, we have a little problem. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, we've been given permission to shoot at the memorial, but we can't have any camera equipment or sound recorded on the memorial. Right. Which was like comedically, yeah. just like, your ki- so basically we can film here, but we can't. You can shoot here, just don't use your cameras. Yeah, or recording <laughs> devices of any kind. And I was this kid, you know, and I was like, look, can I talk to the park representative who was kind of the person in charge? And they said, yeah. And I went over and I just said, look, I understand. But just so you know, we're, we're trying to film a memorial to the veterans that's completely well-intentioned and about literally what the memorial is about and honor the veterans of the war. And in order to do that, I need to film over there and have the camera do this and that and have my actor do this and that. And is that okay? And they said, huh, well, let me make a phone call. And they came back and they let us on. So a homeless man died this morning near the monument. Yeah, uh, when the weather gets down. It occurred to me that maybe he slept there a lot. Maybe you know him. Yeah, he was one of them. Was he a friend of yours? No. I didn't think so. And I kind of negotiated camera position by camera position everything that was shot at the Korean War Memorial because in that was the first trip to D.C. besides the reshoots they had done for the pilot or whether they were reshoots or additional shooting, I don't remember. And so they didn't know us. You know, Washington was like, Who, what's this TV show? And we had a very good experience that day. And after that, they started to open the doors Hmm. for us to shoot in in certain places. And it was real. It was funny because literally I just filmed at the Palace of Versailles three weeks ago. And I'm sitting there having the same moment with the woman who is sort (laughs) of the mistress of the Palace of Versailles. And I'm referencing West Wing, which Hmm. she knows and so she's like, huh. okay, Alex can run the fountains that still run on the same water system. <laughs> and again, I'm pulling tricks that. out of my West Wing bag, like in 2019 at Versailles. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> you still got goodwill from an episode from 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. I, uh, West Wing has always brought uh, generosity of various kinds. Anyway, so then we shot, you know, that whole DC shoot and finished the episode. And Aaron and Tommy, uh, you know, and John were thrilled. And uh, it won a couple Emmys. And they offered me the job producing and being the in-house director on the show. And I passed. Why was that? Well, for two reasons. I was terrified of getting stuck in TV, which, of course, I did. 
And two, we had just had our first baby and I had learned that West Wing wasn't like normal shows and that it was kind of a 24 hour a day job. And I wasn't ready to commit like that. But I was really about like, I didn't know anybody. I mean, I'd gotten along really well with Aaron and Tommy, but I didn't feel like I knew enough about it. So I went back and I did two more episodes and Aaron said, so what do you think? And I said, okay, I'll sign on. And that was halfway through the second season when I'd done the midterms and Galileo. It was at the end of Galileo that I said I'd stay on. Oh, wow. Okay. So I didn't realize that, that all those episodes you had directed. I was just going to ask, was that the beginning of a five-year blur of full-time commitment to the show? I mean, it must have been a huge shift in your life. Well, in a weird way, in Excelsis was because I kept going back all season to shoot additional stuff for Tommy. Because Tommy kind of apparently made the statement saying, nobody can shoot for me but Alex. And so like when Tommy was doing two cathedrals in D.C., I shot stuff for him on the stage at Warner Brothers to keep the show on schedule. For the same episode? Yeah, for two cathedrals. Wow. Interesting. Do you remember what scenes? Oh, I, I would if I saw it. Yeah, it was some scenes. Moving. I mean, this is going to sound like a joke, a West Wing joke, but it was scenes of people walking and talking down the corridors. Of right <laughs> I remember this. So you took the job as a director in-house, and that means you also became a producer. The funny thing about the show, and I, I look back on that, is that I became a producer the morning I landed in Washington, because that was the show was so challenging to do that I think you were inherently, whether it's Chris Messiano or Leslie Lincoln Gladder, you were sort of standing there helping get the show produced because the directing of the show was a critical part of the show. You know, you didn't just show up and do it. And you were very involved in how it was going to be produced. And that's unusual for TV? You know, I don't know because it was like my third job. To me, it just made sense. What Aaron and Tommy were trying to do as partners in the endeavor was so ambitious at the time that it was pretty hard to pull off. I mean, the average rap on West Wing, the first season and a half or two seasons was 4 a.m. Saturday morning. Yeah. You know, we would not wrap at six o'clock on Friday night. We'd still be shooting on the weekend to get done. And the reason was that not only was it hard to pull off, but you were allowed to do 30 takes. I mean, one of my great stories about Tommy Slami and my life on West Wing, you know, people have said Tommy was, you know, my mentor and Tommy was my mentor in ways, but he was really my protector. And it's funny, on an early day on the show, when I was first directing, I was doing what was the opening shot of In Excel Sisteo, and it was like a two-minute long shot. Mm-hmm. And it was a like a quadruple 360 around a Christmas tree on all the characters being introduced. And I had, writ- I had drawn it out like an air traffic control map. I had it so worked out in my head. It was very hard to pull off. Who's playing Santa? Al Roker. Playing Santa? What's wrong with that? Went on a diet. How do you know these things? I read. We'll pat him if we have to. Now we have Jose Feliciano. I was on something like take 27 when Tommy showed up on set. And even though I was green, I was smart enough to know that it was unusual that he had come to set and that somebody had probably called him Hmm. and that I might be getting into a little bit of trouble in these first days on this White House TV show. And um, Tommy came over and said, hey, how's it going? And he sat down and sort of everybody was looking at Tommy. And I said, I'm about to shoot another take. And I did another take and we almost got it. But when I said cut, everybody stopped and looked at Tommy (laughs) to see if he was basically (laughs) going to say, kid, move on. (laughs) You know, everyone looked at Tommy and I looked and waited and Tommy turned to me and he said, that is a great shot. And he walked off. (laughs) And I did five more takes. (laughs) And I think it was take 32. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I got it. And that pretty much explains like my creative life on that show, yeah, which was, that was perfect. Let's go again. Let's go again if I need to. And if I got it in two takes, I got it in two takes. But Tommy protected me from the studio and anybody else in even the DP once in a while from any kind of um, restriction. Hmm. And I think part of it was that he knew that I wasn't an, an indulgent sort. I just knew what I was trying to get and wanted to get it just like everybody else on the show. And it didn't matter if it was me or one of the actors, uh, certainly Aaron, one of the editors, if anybody on that show was trying to reach for something a little higher, Tommy was the King Arthur with his sword out standing there, letting that person reach. Hmm. By the way, piggybacking on that story, I will also add that you're the only director with whom I worked during that time who did a single take of a walk and talk. And I think, I think Mary and I were doing it. 
we finished the first take and you said, uh, cut and let's moving on. And everyone was like, what are you talking about? And you're like, I got it. You're like, but it's a walk and talk. Don't you want to do <laughs> maybe just to be safe? And you're like, no, I got it. My response to you, and this is gloves off, just honest, which you and I rarely are, is <laughs> with you and Mary McCormick, you bet I only did one take. You and Mary together were utterly spectacular. That is nice of you to say. <laughs> I used to rush to work if I had stuff with the two of you, let alone the two of you alone. <laughs> That's awesome. I was in love with both of you and what you were separately, but also together, let alone you guys together were the biggest troublemakers on the show and an absolute blast to work with. You'd literally be on set and Melina and Mary would be doing a scene and in the middle of a take, one of them would go, is that the way you're going to do that line? And the other one would go, F you, you better do it. And then they just keep going. <laughs> that sounds like Mary. <laughs> it was. That sounds it, like me. It, it was funnier. <laughs> it was more fun to watch them shoot a scene than it was to watch the scene. <laughs> it was fantastic. I mean, that, that, those were... Josh used to do scenes with Allison and Mary and off camera, do everything he could to crack them up and mess them up. And it wasn't like evil, vindictive actor stuff. It was almost like Michael Jordan playing with LeBron or something it was like, let's see if you can handle this yeah. and still be good. And it was, it was a blast. Today. That's amazing. Well, I don't sound like a professional, but I'll take it. I think we just jumped into season six from the first half of season Yeah, exactly, one. yeah. Let's go back. I actually want to just go back to this idea that Tommy said that you were the only person who could shoot for him. Mm. What happened between In Excelsis Deo and that moment, besides the episodes that you directed, what happened between the two of you, you think, that created that trust for him? Well, I mean, on the one hand, I went back... After I did In Excelsis Deo, I went back and did my four episodes of Sports Night in a row. So I was really around yeah. working with them. And as somebody now who's gone on and I hire directors and I work on things where I'm supervising or, or around other directors, it is a challenge to find people that you can really trust to just go in and direct the stories and tell the stories properly mm -hmm. um, minute to minute. And I guess he trusted me to do that. And Aaron as well. And we just had a, a real unspoken, easy relationship from the very beginning. I guess maybe maybe we should talk about the end of Sports Night, I guess, was the first, the second season of Sports Night was the first season of West Wing. Yeah. So when Sports Night was over, you already knew you, you had jobs potentially lined up on the other show. Well, I was working on, I was actually doing a lot of work with David Kelly at the time. But I was completely interested in doing West Wing just on a creative level. And to be honest, this is so utterly shallow. But one of the ways Tommy lured me to stay on the show was that they were going to shoot the 185 aspect ratio. Huh. And for me, that was gigantic. <laughs> Nerd. More important than almost anything I'd heard, even the money. I was like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, season two, we're going to start shooting widescreen. And I, I went home and I was like, I'm, I'm signing off. <laughs> like, that's, that's it. it was, <laughs> so, yeah. You know, one of the things that Josh and I spoke about recently was the fact that your background in TV was originally in shows like Ally McBeal and Sports Night. Shows where things like the aspect ratio and, you know, really just the visual production of it wasn't front and center mm -hmm. the way it's been for so many things that you've made since then. Mm -hmm. In season seven, in some of the episodes recently that we've been talking about, we felt that we could see this transition happening. And certainly there are lots of incredible visual things that you did in the West Wing too. But now in the later seasons, especially, it feels like you can see, you know, the seeds of all the other things that you would go on to do. But mm. I'm just wondering, where did that come from? You said that Ali McBeal was the first thing that you had directed with the crew. You have such a reputation with, among everybody that we've interviewed as being this incredibly kinetic visual director. And I'm just wondering, where do you think that came from when you started off with shows like Ally McBeal and Sports Night? Did you always feel like you had that inclination in you? Or is that something that you found yourself attracted to later on? Yeah, I mean, the director of Game of Thrones was standing on the set of Ally McBeal and the practice, my first jobs, wishing I would be allowed to do that sort of thing. And I wanted to make movies, but I didn't really ever get a break in movies and um, ended up on West Wing with people. The thing is, I mean, at the core of it, Aaron and John and Tommy love movies. Mm -hmm. And so you could try to direct West Wing as best you could like a movie if you were so inclined. 
and nobody would stop you. What happened as the seasons went by was after Aaron left and the challenge of making the show without him presented itself to those who were under contract and had to stay and figure it out, which was not fun. You had to elevate what was being written and you had to elevate the show to try to keep it somehow up where it had been under Aaron's talent. And everybody had that same goal. And I also, I think that the key change in West Wing stylistically came out of the election and presidency of George Bush. The country changed. The division grew. You know, people started saying red and blue state and all of the trigger words that built the wedge in the country. And I couldn't film a romantic, cinematic, long take oriented style anymore with the kind of fragmentation that was going on. And we had to go and and game on was the episode where I really literally formally took this on and said, it's over, you know, and I wanted to put a hammer through the glass of what the show had been. Josh, you need your top. What the hell? Take it off. What happened? Sorry, cut it off with scissors. Folks, when I get you to the stage, we have that kind of time. 15 seconds. And I told Tommy, and I went to Tommy in some way, shape or form. I went to Tommy and I said, look, I want to do this handheld. I want to literally screw up and mess up and turn upside down the feeling of the show in this episode because organically in the story, and this is the only reason Tommy would have supported it, was that the characters were having to say, we're going to turn our whole world upside down to win this debate. By the way, that was my, Game On was my first episode and it was incredibly nice for me to come into that environment under your direction. I'll always remember that. Well, it's nice for you to say, but I should also say, since we're now at this point in our lives where we can talk about this stuff, I was so happy you were coming on because I was a huge fan on every level of you. And, and I just so enjoyed working with you that I was just like, couldn't wait. I was like a kid. It was sort of like my buddy from the school I'd been in previously was getting to come over to my school, you know, and we were going to get to finally play soccer together. It was really fun. I appreciate that. And, and did you allude earlier to your uh, being part of the reason why I got the job? I don't think I was a reason you got the job. I mean, nobody told Aaron Sorkin who what actor he was going to hire on the show. But I remember he would test the waters, you know, with people. And I remember him testing the waters about you and Mary Louise Parker and just to sort of see how you'd react, you know. And it's like, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. We're going back and forth a little bit, but let me just backtrack a second from Game On to the finale of season three. That was, I think, the first time that someone other than Tommy directed a finale. Yeah. He had done seasons one and two. You directed that episode, and then that episode, you were nominated for a DGA award, I think. An Emmy. And an Emmy as well, yeah. So there, you're still within, as you described it, the established style of the show. Mm -hmm. Do you think you would have felt ready to break the glass in Game On if you hadn't been sort of recognized in that way you know the fact that you'd gotten this emmy nomination this dga nomination like did that sort of give you license to say okay the established style i've nailed that i can move on and do something else now actually no (laughs) i really it's funny my reaction to the show was every script was a new movie so i would read whenever i would get a script i wouldn't I would almost wait to the read-throughs, but I, I was sort of a very special thing to read one of Aaron's scripts for the first time because I would have a very intense reaction. And so I would try to sort of record that reaction to every single moment that I had reading the script and then bring it to life. Mm-hmm. And so if I had gotten the script to Game On a year earlier, I would have probably done some version of what I did with Game On. Huh. It actually wasn't about confidence I just, I shot it the way I saw it. Yeah. And I tried to actually, I tried very hard to not ever lose that, if that makes any sense. It does. It's a big part of it. Was it ever hard? Is there ever a tension between having to stick to a sort of visual vocabulary that had already been established by Tommy and what the West Wing was and trying to push the limits? Never. It was that definitive. It was that, I guess in a weird way, it's just we were that in sync, so we didn't have any of those. That's the thing about Tommy or Aaron is you could go up to them and say, I know you said black, but what if it were white for this reason? And if they understood the reason, they go, that's fantastic, go do it. And that is, very cool. that's great leadership. So speaking of being in sync, I, I was thinking about how Aaron and Tommy Shlami and John Wells 
were the, you know, the original executive producers on this show. And it makes sense that they had a, a synchron, uh, you know, that they, they were in sync. They found each other. They sort of, they built the show together. They found each other. They chose sort of each other to be this team. Mm -hmm. After Aaron and Tommy left, the mantle certainly fell to John Wells, but also to you and Chris Messiano. And the two of you had been working together, you know, on the show for a long time. Tommy, had, you know, had described it to us before that he did a lot with sort of the two of you. But I was thinking about how you and Chris Messiano, you didn't choose each other. You were both chosen by Tommy, mm -hmm. but you didn't choose each other. And now suddenly you are making this show, you know, you have this responsibility for this team that you didn't actually create. Was that ever an issue for you? Well, we can go back to this, but it's interesting just for the purposes of your show that you left one person out of that scenario. And we can go back to this later, but that person's Brad Whitford. Mm. I mean, just to talk about Chris and I, I mean, Chris and I, you know, we never interfered with each other ever. And we only helped each other if, if the other one needed help, which was rarely. I think it was really good for John and everybody on the show that Chris and I loved the show so much. Mm-hmm. But that's interesting. So you worked, it sounds like you worked more in parallel. Totally. I mean, we spent more time talking about our children than we did the show. Huh. You know, I mean, I wasn't going to tell Chris, I don't like to tell anybody how to direct, but I wasn't going to tell Chris how to direct and he wasn't going to tell me how to direct. And we would just sort and we would, we would marvel at challenges and problems that were unique to the show. When did you first ponder the concept of writing an episode yourself? Oh God. God, it's funny. Almost never. Um, I mean, as the season was coming into its later years and I was looking for new challenges, I was in the writer's room a lot. And um, I just said to John one day, I said, I'd, I'd love to try to write an episode because I was I was also, to be honest, I was looking to after the show and like wanting to be a writer director. And so he says, yeah. And, and I wrote an episode and he was really happy with it. And we shot. And it was actually kind of ironic because it was about creationism versus evolution, which was a battle actually going on in the state I'm from, Kansas, at the time. So it was, it was I was actually writing about something that was going on back where my family was. Congressman, could you tell us if you believe in intelligent design? I believe in God, and I'd like to think he's intelligent. Sir, does that mean you believe you should be taught in schools, Congressman? Congressman, does that mean you don't believe in evolution? Can we go back again? And if it's okay, I'd just like to just pick out a couple of moments, just personal favorite moments from episodes that you've directed, uh, just to ask you about them. Sure. Have you guys ever talked about 17 people? We did. We did a whole episode on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just, I just remembered 17 people out of nowhere. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> what springs to your mind when you think of that episode? Well, there was a great joke about 17 people, which you probably know, which was that it was going to be the bottle episode. And, um, you know, we were always getting in trouble for the show going over and shooting long days. For those of you who don't know, a bottle show is when you just shoot everything with sets and props and stuff you own. There's no money put in the episode and it's supposed to be super easy to do. Well, the problem is that the guy writing the show is one of the greatest playwrights alive. And so he writes 17 people and he writes the script that is so rich and brilliant that it has like nine page scenes that rise and fall and evolve in ways like classic films that you know aren't even made anymore where you know you you go sit in the scene like you're in all the president's men or all about eve and it evolves and evolves and evolves do you receive medication i get injections of beta serine from whom from a doctor None of your current doctors are aware of your condition. Mr. President, is your wife medicating you? I think it'd be best, while temperatures are running a little high, that you refer to my wife as Mrs. Bartlett or the First Lady. And so, we, you know, we had to rehearse, pre-rehearse with the actors for, you know, rehearsals were like an hour long and, and we'd shoot it. And it was like a big play sort of hidden inside a Godfather-esque uh, darkness. And, and um, it was really fun. But I think 70 People was one of the toughest things I ever shot because for the fear of not pulling it off right, you know. The thing about 17 People is it does feel so much like a play. I look at an episode like that and I feel like the challenge falls so much on a director. You know, the problem that Tommy talked about in just with the pilot, how do you make this visually interesting? How do you not just have this be a black box with people 
speaking and doing brilliant performances. Yeah. But you didn't manage to find a way to make that incredibly visually interesting. Well, you know, it's funny. The coolest challenge, even today as a director, is somebody saying, you know, you've got two people in a room and they're, the dialogues are good, but what's the state of mind? Because really directing is what's the state of mind of one of the characters or the characters as a group? Like what is the psychological state that you should be in when you're watching this occur? Yeah. And so 17 people was really a gigantic gift to me to exercise that challenge. The very last scene of that episode really does remind me of The Godfather. I'm, I was oh. surprised that you said that because that is exactly what I think of when Toby comes back to the room and everybody else is joking around and he's, uh, and then you close with the sound of the ball still bouncing against the wall. No, it's the total unabashed deal from Godfather with uh, Pacino closing the door in Keaton. And the ball is, of course, from The Great Escape. So uh, we were swimming in our, our favorite movies there. That's great. Do you remember filming the scene with Josh and Allison Janney and Mary Louise Parker in Privateers when uh, they encounter Marion Coatsworth Hay? No, I'm just telling you that if this day ends up with me face to face with Marion Coatsworth Hay, I'm going to, you know, laugh inappropriately. There's a very real possibility. Yes. Yes, <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That I was do. good fun. That was just like, you can't believe you're getting paid to show up and do this. And that's the thing about Aaron is that, and Privateers is a great example of that, is Aaron was so good at knowing his cast and writing to their strengths, either dramatically or comedically or what have you. And mm -hmm. it was so funny to get a scene with those actors that just played to everybody's comedic strength. Like with Mary Louise as the straight man and Janie just laughing through an entire scene. I mean... Is this a hazing? I swear it's not a hazing. It's real. It's real. I just laughed because of the name. You could have fixed it. Uh, I could have watched her all day doing that scene. Fun as it gets. I mean, Marion Co yeah. And let alone, who, who comes up with Marion Coates? <laughs> 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 it's the character name. So he, he has a strong name game. Another moment that I love is the love scene between Will Bailey and the uh, ice cream sandwich in <sighs> King Corn. <laughs> King Corn. King Corn is actually one of my favorite episodes. It's a great episode. If I directed something that I, I actually liked the directing, that's one of them. Yeah. What about that episode makes you say that? Well, I was, you know, I, I like the Rashomon element of the episode. And, and um, what was fun about King Corn was we got into doing a bunch of research about campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire, which was a huge and still, you know, it's a huge part of the political process and dealing with the average American person and the life of being on the road and all of that. So Wells had done a really nice job and written a really beautiful script about this. And I was looking for really quirky, weird individual moments for people. And we were scouting, I think it was a holiday in, in Burbank, where we were again, shooting kind of a bottle dynamic. And they had this bizarro ice cream machine. And I had Molina in my arsenal. I mean, you take Josh Molina and you have, if you're going to have an actor stare at a machine <laughs> doing something bizarre, you've got your man in Molina because he can play it perfectly. <laughs> And so I came up with that. It's very funny. You should have seen me editing that scene. I was like, no, no, it's that frame of Melina, that frame of the arm moving around, and that frame when it goes up instead of down. And it's like, I was obsessed with that moment. And I think from that obsession came a very weird, great moment that people who've lived that life seem to like. Yes, I already appreciated that scene, but then um, when it came time to me, <laughs> I, I made a <laughs> I made a gif out of <laughs> out of the moment of uh, the exchange yeah, between the two of them, and so I was watching that part over and over again and appreciating like the ex exactly how long each of those shots held, <laughs> you know, between <laughs> him looking at the tricky. him looking at the carnation ice cream sandwich <laughs> back to him. One of the scariest creative things that ever happened to me was that I had planned it to that Ryan Adams song and it didn't fit very well. Mm. And I had to really cut yeah. very carefully. I had to recut everything in that montage to make the ice cream machine work. <laughs> Priorities. And I literally recut Jimmy Smith's everybody. I was recutting everything to make the ice cream timing land just perfectly. <laughs> 
That's great. Your priorities were in the right place. Yes, yes. I love that that is incorporated in an episode in which you're also referencing Rashomon style. Uh-huh. Joshamon. <laughs> Joshamon. <laughs> Joshamon. There you go. Um, he's still got it. But um, it was finding character in the weirdest moments. Another great moment is when Janelle is getting up in the morning and making her coffee. And there's the shot of her moving the bathroom mat around with her feet. And that was in rehearsal. She had, I said, I wanted her to have wool socks on. Mm -hmm. But we were rehearsing and Janelle was like, I think I'd move the mat around like this with my feet so I don't touch the floor. And that was Janelle. Like it was a perfect idea that we all kind of relate to somehow. Perfect. Like you're in a bathroom you don't know, so you don't want to touch the floor. (laughs) And that's, again, you know, one of the most talented actors I've ever worked with in Janelle Maloney coming up with a great little idea that I still love whenever I see that episode. That's great. Do you go back and watch uh, episodes of The West Wing? Oh, every day. No, I'm joking. Uh, No, never. (laughs) Every day. You know, every once in a while, somebody will say something and I'll go, oh, yeah. Or even something will happen politically, you know, and you'll go. And I I saw King Corn three or four years ago. And I had I would say that I haven't seen anything really since it aired, but I've seen probably 10 episodes that I did since we were on. And it's funny because it's like literally it's a it's like your mind opening up and just watching memories roll out. Okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for more with Alex Graves. The West Wing Weekly is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way to put your ideas online. We love Squarespace so much that we created our site with them and they host it. It's true. It's not even the only Squarespace site that I've made. The other one is my website, rishikesh.co. If you want to make a website for whatever it is you're passionate about, go to squarespace.com slash Westwing and you'll get a free trial. You can check out Squarespace for free. Wait, do you have to be passionate about something to make a site? Because now I'm no longer interested. (laughs) No, you could make a website about something you're barely interested in. Ah, I'm back in. (laughs) When you're ready to launch your website about the thing you're passionate about or mildly interested in, just use the offer code WESTWING and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's right. Go to squarespace.com slash WESTWING. It's a free trial. Rishi, did you know that according to the FBI, the average loss in a burglary is over two grand? That can be hard to recover from. That's serious. Yeah. And right now, it's summer. July and August are when the most burglaries happen. It's stealing time. The crazy thing is that only one in five homes actually have home security. Yeah, that makes no sense. But maybe that's because most companies don't make it that easy for you to get it. It can be confusing. It can be expensive. Yeah, it can take a lot of time to get it set up. It's kind of a hassle. But that's not the case with Simply Safe. Simply Safe will protect every one of your doors and windows in all of the rooms with 24/7 professional monitoring. That's right, and they make it easy on you. There's no contract, no hidden fees, no fine print. You can check out all the awards that they've won from CNET to the wire cutter from the New York Times. But the thing that makes Simply Safe really stand out is their video verification technology. That's right. They're able to visually confirm that the break-in is happening, and that allows police to get to the scene three and a half times faster than other home security companies. Because false alarms happen with some regularity, a lot of times police assume that it's a false alarm, and your home security alert goes to the bottom of the list, but that doesn't happen with this. So visit simplysafe.com slash Westwing, and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Yeah, you've got nothing to lose. So go now to simplysafe.com slash Westwing. Make sure you go to slash Westwing so that they know that we sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash Westwing. Our podcast is sponsored by The Real Real, the leading reseller of authenticated luxury from top designers. That's right. You can shop designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Rolex, Cartier, and literally hundreds more at up to 90% off retail. Besides being an online retailer, they also have original stores in Soho or West Hollywood. Then they've got a new location at 870 Madison Avenue in New York. In-store new customers receive an automatic 25 bucks off at checkout. CJ would love the real real. You should check it out. Be like her. You can shop in-store or online, or you can download their app and get 20% off select items with the promo code REAL. That's therealreal.com, promo code REAL, for 20% off select items. 
And now, back to the show. I want to ask you about the two episodes that you directed that we've discussed so far. Well, by the time this airs, our episode on here today will have not yet come out. But Josh and I have already recorded it. We've already talked about it. The Mommy Problem and Here Today, these two early episodes in season seven, to me are kind of opposites. The way that you've directed them specifically are are so different from one another. And I was wondering if you could tell us about the contrast between those two. I mean, you might have already answered it with with what you said about how you viewed every script like its own movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of that's very funny that you spot that because uh, that I remember very very clearly that which you point out, which is that they're directed completely differently. The mommy problem was a really good script written by Eli Addy about campaigning. And it was very, very in sync with the research we were doing, talking to people in Washington about campaigning. And I was really living and breathing that at the time. And it was, I was excited to go out and kind of depict on the ground documentary style narrative of people talking about charts and math and public opinion and dealing with locals and and traveling and everything that mommy problem had to do, do with. And I couldn't wait to do like my Steve Miller band montage was my filmic obsession of that year. I was so, I couldn't wait to shoot that and get that made Mm -hmm. and was so glad that I was able to do that kind of filmmaking. But um, here today was a script that I did not like at all. Really? I didn't like it and I didn't think it worked well. And it was at a time when we were dealing with some of the new writing and I just didn't like the writing very much and I couldn't figure it out. And I had been watching Parallax View or something that Alan J. Pakula and Gordon Willis had done in the 70s. And I went, you know, I'm realizing that there is a way to direct this with such pretension and weight that it actually registers. And then I suddenly, as soon as I started to lock in to visually how I was going to do it, I knew exactly what the episode was going to be. But I really struggled with that in prep. It started with not liking it and turned into not giving up, you know. And your first instinct, though, wasn't to go back to Peter Noah and say, hey, I have problems with this script. Yeah, I think at that point I was so frustrated with some of the writers that I didn't I just was, I didn't want to even want to, I didn't want, I had complained so much about some of the writing that I wasn't about to go back in and keep going. My thing was, if you're going to complain, what's the point of opening your mouth unless you have a solution? Hmm. And the only solution I had was visual. So I figured out visually how to tell that story and did it. And by the time I was done shooting, realized that I kind of found my way around to Peter's, probably his intentions. But I, I didn't talk to Peter about it I, I, at all. Would you mind telling us with some specificity what some of your problems were with the writing? Well, that goes into Wells's, you know, season five. I mean, season five was the difficult season. I guess you're looking at it with, as you said, you, you were one of the biggest fans of the show. And so you had the same issues with it that some of the fans of the show had. Mm-hmm. So Aaron and Tommy are off the show and Wells sits me down and says, look, I'm under contract for another year. I've got to stay. Nobody was more intimidated by Aaron not writing the show than John Wells. And 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 not because John wanted to maintain his hit, but I think the show meant a lot to John and and the country means a lot to John. And he wanted to keep West Wing going and, and for all the right reasons. And um, he said, look, I'm screwed. I mean, I just lost the greatest writer in the world and everyone's hoping I'm going to write it and I'm not the greatest writer in the world. And um, we're going to, I'm going to need all the help I could get. And I said, I agree. <laughs> And and, uh, and we kind of went at it, and it was sort of like, I think in a weird way, John was coming at it from a producer-showrunner angle in terms of running a writer's room and doing his best to hire people he thought could write the show. With people like Deb Kahn and Eli Addy, who were kind of new people, and then he hired some of his friends. And what we got into was that his friends were writing a different show. And I remember one of them saying one time, in the writer's room in front of me, well, let's pretend we're writing West Wing for Dummies. <laughs> and I almost like lifted the table up and threw it through the wall. You know, it was sort of like, <laughs> it's not what we, we were never doing that. We're certainly not going to start doing it now. <laughs> what happened in that fifth season was that I think John was finding out do's and don'ts about how to run the show and how to create the show. I'm glad you found your way into here today because 
I'm, I know this is saying a lot, but uh, it is visually my favorite episode of the series. Oh, that's really funny. Because what I'm realizing is I don't remember it. It's crazy looking. Huh. It's pretty great. Is it the one? I know that I did an episode or two where I did almost every scene in one shot. This is one where there may be no shots where you get a clear view of people's faces. Mm. Everybody's shot either in shadow or in reflection or from outside the room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I really, I couldn't love that one more. It works. Yeah, I, I'd like to make a show like that. But yeah, that was just really reaching into the old mid-70s filmic style. Of, it's very Gordon Willis in how, whether it was Woody Allen in Manhattan or Godfather or Alan J. Pakula, whenever they, these directors were working with Gordon Willis, he would shoot that way. And I actually watched Manhattan to prepare for that. Huh. Manhattan is shot in the most sophisticated and adult way that almost an American film has ever been shot. And it's really Gordon Willis at his peak shooting what's known as a comedy, but it's a, you know, it's a dramatic comedy. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating how that film was shot. And I was sort of living in that somehow syncing up with the, the script for here today when I shot it. Wow. Do you have any memories about dealing with an actor in Richard Schiff who wasn't happy with his storyline? And the, the leak? Well, Richard was never happy. Um, that's, is, <laughs> There's that, too. Yeah, Richard wasn't happy with the storyline. A lot of that really went to Wells, and it was between Wells and Richard. And ironically, I don't think Richard complained around me that much. And I was really there for Richard because I loved Richard madly from the very beginning of the series. I always felt very, very passionate, I guess, about Toby and Richard, and that Richard would grow as Toby. And I think that what was hard was that the writers were running out of ideas for Toby. And I think Richard and Toby were experiencing this and it was very painful. Fair enough. Alex, in season seven, you knew it was the last season of the show, right? You knew at this point that the show was ending. Mm -hmm. Your last episode in which you are credited as as an executive producer is election day part one. Did you not finish out the series? No, I didn't finish the series. I got an opportunity to direct a pilot in January, February of the final season. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do after West Wing. And my immediate idea was, well, I should direct a pilot or two because I can still maintain the level of control that I have here. And it seemed like a good segue potentially into movies, which is what I really wanted to do the whole time. And so I got a pilot called The Nine at Warner Brothers that I took and so I finished making the cold and um, went off to do this pilot and left and, and was not involved at all with the rest of the season. You weren't under contract? I was under contract, but because the show was ending, I was released. I, you know, I, I went to Wells and said, look, I got a pilot. I'm gonna, would like to go do that. And he said, sure. Hmm. It sounds familiar. Who else was on The Nine? Uh, the Nine was uh, Kim Raver and a wonderful cast of actors. Scott Wolf, Tom Verica. And you were on it. That's what I was working towards. Okay, we can move now. <laughs> I mean, we're so many years from it now, but does it feel strange to you at all that you didn't finish The West Wing? No, because when John Spencer died, I don't know why I bring that up. It's, I, I never really thought of it as having anything to do with me being kind of done with the show. It was very, very hard to make the show without Aaron writing it. And um, I loved the cast with all my heart and wanted to kind of keep going and try to make it work for, you know, do what I was supposed to do. But I was ready to be done long before I left. Really? Yeah. I don't know if anybody knew that, you know, I was ready. I wanted to do other things and I wanted to stretch it. I I mean, in a weird way, I was sort of probably longing for game of Thrones or something, but uh, to do something bigger and different and more challenging. So, I mean, it was hard to leave, but I also, I don't know how I would have gotten through like the final days of the series with Martin and Allison and everybody. It would have been so painful and and emotional and, and, uh, and yet I was ready to go. It was just a weird, it's very hard, I think, to finish something. You've gone on to all so much stuff since the West Wing. What do you think is the biggest thing that you learned from the West Wing that you've ended up taking with you to other projects? To not give up, you know, to reach and try not to compromise. I mean, I, I think you're always compromising because there's never enough time or money or there doesn't seem to be. But to sort of stand there and say it really needs to go this way or it won't be as special. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my rule on West Wing was kind of, I had a slightly morbid rule, which is uh, my mother had died right sure, you know, in the years shortly before I started West Wing. And I remember kind of thinking, if I ever am on my deathbed or looking back, I don't want to look back and go, I compromised, or I just phoned this in, or I did what they told me to do. I think I learned the lesson of like, you've got to get it. Don't cave and go, well, gee, it was tough, so we didn't really get it. And whether it was casting an episode of West Wing or shooting one or cutting one, especially in the filmmaking aspects of it, like those that I just mentioned, it was like I used to make the casting director cry because I would say, we don't have them yet. We have to keep looking. And she'd, she'd be like, can we start filming in two days? <laughs> I want to be done. Yeah, and I want to be done. And I'd be like, we don't have them. And then she'd have four more people in, and there they'd be. You know, and you go, there they are. Yeah. And that the casting of that small supporting role would elevate the episode. Yeah. I learned all that stuff. Everything I wondered about filmmaking and everything I believed about filmmaking and everything I didn't know about filmmaking got challenged and shaken up while I was doing it. So it was just a fantastic uh, preparation for what came after. That's great. Other favorite stories of yours that we have neglected to ask you about? Oh, sure. What's your favorite memory from the West Wing? Uh, I was lining up a shot one day of Martin and Stocker doing a walk and talk. And um, we were getting ready to do a camera rehearsal with Martin and Stockard, and they were brought in, and I was distracted with what I was doing. And um, Martin tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Alex. And I said, what? And I turned around, and he goes, I wanted want to shoot my friend Terry. And he introduced me to Terrence Malick, um, <laughs> who was visiting Martin. And um, Martin said, I'll be right back. And he ran off, and he and Stockard <laughs> did the camera rehearsal, and it was this big, long, involved shot of course. And, and I said, cut. And after I said, cut this voice behind me belonging to Terrence Malick went, Hey, great shot. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> wow. And so that's like a favorite memory. You know, it's worth really saying that when you say, what are your favorite memories? My favorite memories are all the surprises that the cast gave me in what had sort of been my plan for the day. And that does it for this special episode of the West Wing Weekly. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Alex Graves, for finally joining us. Thanks, as always, to Zach McNeese, Margaret Miller, and Nick Song for helping us make this show. We are a proud member of Radiotopia. Radiotopia is a collection of the finest podcasts in all the land. And you can find out more about the others at radiotopia.fm. Okay. Okay. What's next? Radiotopia.